Chapter Seven of Essays in Literary Studies by Stephen Leacock. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Fiction and Reality: A Study of the Art of Charles Dickens. It was in one of those literary circles into which I am sometimes permitted to enter that the talk fell not long ago upon the art of Charles Dickens and his place in the world's literature. Dickens, of course said a gentleman with a velvet jacket and long black hair, is not really to be taken seriously. Is he not? I said. Oh, no, one can't really call him a novelist in the true sense. His characters, after all, are not characters but merely caricatures. The speaker put his hand up to his necktie and gave it a peculiar little hitch. I had seen him do it twenty times already that evening. Every one of the characters in Dickens, he went on, has some peculiar little tag, something that he is always doing, and that you know him by. Here he hitched his necktie again. For example, Traddles in David Copperfield is always trying to flatten his hair, what's his name in Bleak House is always taking snuff, and someone else, Uriah Heep, is it not, is perpetually rubbing his hands together and so on. Now in real life— continued the gentleman in the velvet jacket, in a pitying tone. People don't do these things. Here he hitched his necktie. They simply don't do them, that's all. Precisely, joined in another person who was standing near us, by occupation a professor of literature, and hence one who ought to know. There's no complexity in the characters, eh, what? Everything they say, so stilted, eh? Take their way of speaking, eh, what? always using some little phrase, something you can tell them by, a sort of formula, eh, what? Do you think so? I said musingly. I was counting the number of times the professor was saying a, and I noted that he was up to four. I knew by experience that he could easily run up a hundred in five minutes. Take Mark Tapley, he went on. You know, in Martin Chezelwit, eh? Dickens can't make him speak without having him say jolly. It seems like an obsession, eh? Don't you think so, eh, what? Some others joined us, and the conversation became general. It appeared from it that Dickens was, after all, but a poor cheap comedian, a sort of black-faced vaudeville artist, a ventriloquist with a box full of grotesque impossible dolls, each squawking out its little phrase amid the laughter of the uneducated. But as a writer in the real sense, he was, it seemed, nowhere put him beside, I forget who, and he shrinks into a pygmy. Compare his work to, somebody I never heard of, and it withers into dead grass. Take a really great man, a big man, like, I can't remember the name, he writes, I understand, a quarter of a column every third week in the Saturday supplement, to do more would exhaust his vein, and where is Dickens? Or take a man with the penetration of, I can't recall whose penetration, but again, where is Dickens? From hearing which I went home sad, for I have been reading Dickens now for thirty-two years, ever since I first opened the pages of the Pickwick Papers, and stepped into an enchanted world of English lanes, and stage-coaches, and gabled inns and London streets, where I walked arm in arm with Micawber and Thomas Pinch, and that great company of immortals, more real than life itself. That evening, after I had come home and sat down by my fire, 
I fell to thinking what Dickens would have said, or what his characters themselves would have thought, of the accusations to which I had been listening. If one could only get them together and put it to them, what would they think about it? So I sat before the fire, a volume of Dickens upon my knee, musing, till it grew late. And then— "'If the company will now come to order,' said Mr. Pickwick, rapping gently on the table, and beaming through his spectacles with a kindliness that seemed to irradiate the whole of the assemblage before him. "'I will ask my good friend Mr. Sergeant Buzfuzz to read the indictment in the matter before us.' There was an almost instant silence. Everybody present, from sagacious persons such as Mr. Perker of Gray's Inn, or his unfathomable colleague Mr. Tulkinghorn, to such simple souls as Mr. Willett Sr. or Mr. Dick, could not fail to perceive that there must be something quite unusual on foot when Mr. Pickwick should speak of the learned sergeant as his good friend, and should even appear to direct a glance of something like affectionate recognition towards Mr. Dodson and Fogg, who were seated in close proximity to the great legal luminary himself. "'Half a minute, Pickwick,' interrupted the cheery voice of a rather dilapidated but altogether brisk personage seated in one of the front rows of chairs dry business lawyer's speech go on talking won't stop perish of thirst better let someone brew us punch eh sir only a minute egad pickwick jingles right cried out mr wardle let the lawyers talk away if you like but I'll be dashed, sir, if I'll sit here all evening with a dry throat, listening to their palaver. Here, Emily, Joe, where the deuce is that boy gone to? But long before the fat boy could be roused up from his slumbers in a remote corner of the hall, where he lay enthroned upon a pile of rugs and wraps, among which the greatcoat of Mr. Weller Sr. and the shawl of Mrs. Gamp were plainly discernible, another volunteer had stepped into the breach. How and whence Mr. Micawber was suddenly able to produce a bag of lemons, by what necromancy sugar was added to them, set into such fascinating little lumps that the soul of the sugar trust might well shrink with envy at the sight of them, by what artifice he was able to combine them in proportions known only to himself with a square bottle of extra gin, and to bedew the surface of the steaming mixture with nutmegs that must have come from the very groves of Lebanon itself, how all this was done, I say, passes the imagination to conceive. Necromancy it must have been indeed, for as the steaming bowl of punch sent its vapours throughout the room, so transfigured and yet so strangely lifelike did the assembled company become, as seen through its haze, that I vow it must have been brewed from the very lemons of reminiscence, mixed by that strange alchemy of affection that is wafted to us still from the pages of the unforgotten master. "'Excellent,' said Mr. Pickwick, as he put down his glass. "'I don't know when I've tasted better punch.' "'Only once, perhaps,' chuckled Mr. Wardle. "'Ah, well, yes, once, perhaps,' assented Mr. Pickwick with perfect serenity, and then turning to old Mrs. Wardle, who sat close on his left hand, attired in her very best cap, and who for this evening seemed to have laid aside every trace of deafness, he added, "'Your son will have his joke, madame. He is reminding me of an incident to which I fear perhaps already too much attention has been given by—by—' by... 
Mr. Pickwick seemed to hesitate for a phrase. He looked in a somewhat dubious way towards Mr. Perker of Gray's Inn, and added, "'By an undiscerning public!' "'Quite so,' nodded Mr. Perker lustily. "'By an undiscerning public. You may say that, Mr. Pickwick, with entire impunity. An undiscerning public. I take your meaning. Very good, sir. A glass of punch, sir?' "'With pleasure,' said Mr. Pickwick whereupon there was such a hobnobbing of glasses, and such an exchange of compliments, and such an affectionate reciprocity of sentiment in various parts of the hall, that it seemed for a time as if the serious business of the evening were likely to be indefinitely suspended. All good things, however, even the drinking of punch by Mr. Micawber and his associates, must of necessity come to an end. Partly by sundry mild knockings on Mr. Pickwick's table, and partly by more violent disturbances on the floor created by Mr. Bumble's staff, a measure of quiet was restored. "'With your permission, then,' said the illustrious chairman, "'I will resume the course of my remarks. My intention has been to content myself with asking my good friend Mr. Sergeant Buzzfuzz to state the whole of the matter which brings us together. But perhaps I shall not be trespassing upon my valued friend's prerogative if I say a word or two in introduction of his discourse. Loud cries of, Hear, hear! mingled perhaps with a sound not entirely unlike the crowing of a cock, and which may have proceeded from the lungs of Mr. Samuel Weller, indicated an ample assent. Very good, said Mr. Pickwick, evidently very much gratified. I shall try to be very brief, and as I dare not pretend to emulate the talent of my learned friend, I will endeavour to say what I mean in as few words as possible. Mr. Pickwick paused for a moment, and then with a look of something like constraint or even distress upon his usually unruffled countenance, he resumed. None of you, I fear, are altogether ignorant of the name of Mr. Blotton of Aldgate. Loud groans coupled with cries of shame, traitor, snake in the grass, gave ample evidence to Mr. Pickwick had he needed it, of the reputation which Mr. Blotton of Aldgate enjoyed among his associates. Indeed, it had so long been the practice to exclude that gentleman and all mention of him from every assemblage of this sort, that the company were filled with wonder that Mr. Pickwick himself should thus openly name his arch-enemy and detractor. "'It is only with great reluctance,' continued the good gentleman, "'that I pronounce the name of this individual.' His offence towards myself I readily pass over, but his want of respect towards that illustrious body, which was good enough to honour me by designating itself after my name, I refer more explicitly to the Pickwick Club, is a matter which has, I think, already been condemned by the verdict of impartial history. Mr. Pickwick looked about him. His audience, evidently impressed by the fervour of the chairman's eloquence, were now completely silent. Some of them, indeed, as Mr. Weller Sr., were evidently so spellbound by Mr. Pickwick's oratory that they leaned back in their seats with their eyes closed, as in an ecstasy of enjoyment. Had Mr. Blotton of Aldgate confined his malice to his disruption of the Pickwick Club, or even to the foul blow which he dealt to the noble science of archaeology in his unwarranted attack on the authenticity of an inscription which I may say at least stands, in spite of his onslaughts, 
unique in the annals of literature, had his malice stopped there, despicable though it was, I for one should have been content to consign his memory to the ignominy which it has so richly deserved. But, gentlemen, it has not stopped here. It did not so stop. It has gone on. It is still with us. Here Mr. Pickwick made another pause, so dramatic and impressive, that even those of his associates, who were not yet aware of the purpose of the present gathering, realized that it was no ordinary communication that Mr. Pickwick was about to impart. "'It is now,' continued Mr. Pickwick, "'some eighty years since the individual to whom I allude first gave evidence of the singularly malicious composition of his individuality.' it might have been hoped that it would long since have passed into oblivion. Alas, it was not to be. Like everything that was touched by that master hand, of which we all, my assembled friends, are the common product, Mr. Blotton of Aldgate has proved immortal. More than that, he appears, like every character created by our great originator, to have been multiplied to infinity. I lament to say that in this latter age, Every civilized country has its Aldgate, and every Aldgate, I grieve to state, is disfigured by its blotton. One might have thought that our dead master's memory would have been left unassailed. Alas, every genius has its detractors. In every generous bosom a snake is warmed. And from this snake, and from these snakes of whom I speak, from this cohort of snakes, here Mr. Pickwick spoke with the greatest animation, while his spectacles glittered with a just indignation that was reflected upon the listening faces before him. From these reptile blottons of the Aldgates of all countries there has gone forth against our great originator, and hence, gentlemen, against each and every one of us, an accusation so foul, so despicable, that I know no other way to characterize it than to say that it could have been only emanated from the mind of a blotton of Aldgate. That accusation is— Here Mr. Pickwick paused and looked about him, while the assembled company remained breathless upon the very verge of expectancy. That accusation is, repeated Mr. Pickwick, that we are not real, that we are caricatures, that not one of us— and I beg the company to mark my words, not a single one of us ever existed or ever could exist. In short, my friends, that we are mere monstrous exaggerations, each of us drawn in a crude and comic fashion from a few imaginary characteristics. The mingled roar of indignation and contempt that burst from the throats of the auditors gave evidence at once to the power of Mr. Pickwick's oratory, and to the unanimity of their contempt. The loud cries of, Shame! Monstrous! that broke from the lips of the indignant Wardle and the vociferous Boythorn, were not unmingled with the sound of the crowing of cocks and the popping of corks, which gave evidence of the lively feelings of Mr. Sam Weller, Alfred Jingle, Esquire, Mr. Tapley, and others of the lighter spirits of the company while the voice of Mr. Micawber was heard above the din in loud inquiry as to whether this was still a British country, or whether his own immediate return to his adoptive Australia was not necessitated by the lamentable but evident degeneration of the British Isles. Mr. Pickwick waited until a measure of quiet had been restored, and then resumed. 
under the circumstances gentlemen you will not be surprised to learn that after consulting with my valued friend mr sergeant buzfuzz we have decided to hold an enquiry or inquisition my learned friend will pardon me if the term is misapplied a halibi governor make it a halibi interrupted a deep warning voice it's far safer halibi first and henquiry afterwards in any case said mr pickwick what i desire to do with your concurrence is to place the whole case in the hands of our legal colleagues here present and to request our learned and distinguished friend sergeant buzfuzz to conduct it for us mr pickwick paused turned with a courteous bow towards the long table at his right hand at which a serried phalanx of lawyers in full wigs and gowns were seated and indicating with a wave of his hand the commanding figure of the illustrious sergeant who sat at the head of the table he resumed his seat could any reader of the works of the great master have been present on this momentous occasion it would have warmed his heart to have looked upon the solid array of legal talent at the long table over which sergeant buzfuzz here presided nor could he in the face of such an imposing panel have felt the faintest apprehension that the base allegations of mr blotton of aldgate and of the numerous and loathsome progeny which have sprung from him would not be scattered to the four winds of heaven here sat in friendly colloquy with buzfuzz the equally illustrious snubbins beside them among his piles of papers and his sacks of reference books laboured the industrious funky near him the massive brow of the great striver bound with a wet towel was bent over a glass of still steaming punch as if seeking a final inspiration the nimble perker of gray's inn was side by side with the inscrutable tulkinghorn of lincoln's here sat wakefield his wasted face imprinted with the dumb pathos of his broken mind clasping his daughter's hand for comfort here even the ghastly voles and the unregenerate heap and the obsequious dodson and fogg mingled their false plaudits with the approbation of the crowd and here at the further end with head back tilted on the chair with eyes that sought the ceiling and with pale lips that still murmured the threnody of the guillotine the immortal figure of carton lit with a softer light as of the dead among the living so sat they the unreal lawyers of the unreal books of the master and as they sat betokened by their very presence a greater power of life and truth than life itself sergeant buzfuzz rose we wish it were in our power to present to our readers a full report of the magnificent oration delivered by that learned man the introduction alone in which the sergeant with the aid of books and documents handed to him by mr stryver rapidly reviewed the history of literature from plato to chesterton was of such singular merit that mr solomon pell was heard to remark that not even his intimate friend the lord chancellor could have made a better presentation they had before them said the learned sergeant not merely a question of art but a question of reality and of the relation between the two of the nature of reality he would not leave them long in doubt witnesses would be called witnesses of unimpeachable character who should establish the nature of reality to an iota nor should they long remain in doubt as to the nature and meaning of art he would if need be call to the witness-box a gentleman of unexcelled antiquarian learning 
who should establish to their satisfaction the fact of the existence of art among the Romans, here all eyes were turned for a moment towards Dr. Blimber. He would, if it were necessary, further establish the point from the lips of the consort of that distinguished scholar, who would testify that there were distinct traces of art even in the writings of Cicero. He would have the word itself examined, searched, and impounded by one of the greatest lexicographers of the age. Here the sergeant bowed politely in the direction of Dr. Strong. A lexicographer, he would add, whose labors had now long since overpassed the question of art, and all other questions beginning with the noble letter A, and were now rapidly traversing the letter D. "'But, gentlemen,' continued the sergeant, at this point we were able to reproduce his words verbatim, "'we need here something more than mere definitions. It is ours to inquire how far art, which in this instance is represented by fiction, is at one with reality, how far the picture of life presented must correspond lineament for lineament with the literal aspect of the thing itself. The accusation has been made in the affidavits of Mr. Blotton of Aldgate that the art of the great master is false, that it shows life and character not as they are, but distorted into a series of caricatures. The fatal word exaggeration has been launched upon an unsuspecting world. Charles Dickens, here the sergeant for the first time, and with an intense majesty of bearing and expression, uttered that noble name before the company. Charles Dickens exaggerates. That is the charge of which he stands accused. That is the foul calumny by which his fair name is rapidly being overcast. He has made each of us here present represent and typify, so runs the allegation, merely a single characteristic, and that, too, distorted and magnified beyond its natural shape. I myself, gentlemen, as presented in the laudable, though I admit somewhat too impartial pages of the Pickwick Papers, represent, so it is said, a mere abstraction of forensic eloquence. I believe the word bombast is used in the allegation before us. The sergeant paused for a fraction of a second, and something like an expression of doubt, of uncertainty, was seen to rest upon his features. But it passed as rapidly as it had come, and he resumed. My good friend, Mr. Pickwick, is mere benevolence, sheer insipid benevolence, nothing else. At this point, somewhat to the distraction of the speaker, the genial countenance of the chairman, from his spectacles to his double chin, was seen to beam with an expression of such utter and complete benevolence that the sergeant thought it well to leave that item of his argument incomplete. Our friend William Sykes, he is not in this gathering, but I understand that he is at present engaged in crawling about the roof of this building. Our worthy colleague Mr. Carker, our esteemed ally Mr. Jones Chuzzlewit, these are said to impersonate sheer malice of disposition, and nothing else. Nay, even my good friend, Mr. Pecksniff, whom I believe I see at the end of the hall warming his back at the fire in a manner I think familiar to all, is said to stand for sheer hypocrisy, and for no other conceivable characteristic. At this point Mr. Pecksniff, for he indeed it was, was seen to lift a deprecating hand, and those who stood or sat nearest to him were able to hear him enjoin his daughter Mercy in an audible whisper, 
that she should remind him that night to make explicit mention of all literary critics in his prayers. Or to come down to mere particulars and idiosyncrasies, went on Sergeant Buzfuzz, it is said that our good friend, Mr. Uriah Heep, is always rubbing his hands. I admit, said the sergeant, glancing with a slight frown at the lawyer's table where Uriah sat, that he is doing so, happens to be doing so, at this particular moment. But the allegation runs that he is always and perpetually doing so beyond the verge of human credence. It is similarly charged that Mr. Micawber is always and perpetually brewing punch. Mr. Micawber's guilty hand is seen to retreat noiselessly from the punch-bowl, as the sergeant's eye turned to him. That he also is always waiting for something to turn up, that Mr. Mark Tapley is always jolly, that my honoured friend Mr. Wardle owns and conducts a country house where it is always and perpetually Christmas, and that Mr. Jingle only speaks in monosyllables and broken phrases, and has never been known to make a sentence in his life. Stop there! interrupted the voice of the dilapidated Alfred Jingle. Damn lie! Sentence once! Fleet Street sentence! Never forget! Noble conduct! Everlasting gratitude! Tut, tut! interrupted the chairman. I am sure there are lots of things that we all had better agree to forget. The sergeant's unhappy introduction of the word sentence seemed to occasion so peculiar a feeling of discomfort in a number of the auditors. The lively agitation of Mr. Heap, Mr. Micawber, and others was especially noticeable, that the speaker, with the instinctive feeling of the orator, realized that it was impossible to resume his suspended period. "'But, gentlemen,' he continued, "'the hour waxes already late. I will no longer expiate upon the nature of the charge before us. I will proceed at once in its rebuttal.' Here the sergeant consulted for a moment a list of names that was handed to him by Mr. Funky. "'Call Sarah Gamp!' he cried. There was a sudden stir in a distant part of the hall, as of a heavy body being set into motion, and to the evident satisfaction of everybody the familiar form of Mrs. Gamp, who had apparently resumed her shawl and her patterns, was seen to approach the table. She presently brought up alongside it, with as much majesty of movement as that of a full-rigged coal-barge coming to anchor beside the embankment. The sergeant now turned to the lawyer's table and addressed one of the members of the panel, whose rusted black attire, whose pale, indeed ghastly face, and whose uncertain eyes and ambiguous expression left no doubt of his identity. "'Mr. Voles,' he said, "'I understand from the chairman that it is the general desire of the assemblage that you should act, as it were, as the advocatus diaboli, in other words, should have the privilege of appearing for the prosecution. You are at liberty to question the witness. Mr. Voles arose. Accustomed as he was to the more leisurely procedure, and the congenial delays of the court of chancery, he may well have felt somewhat ill at ease in the summary methods of investigation here adopted by the sergeant but his courage was fortified by the presence of sundry volumes of literary criticism that lay heaped before him, written in various languages, mostly other than English, on which he relied to establish his case. "'Your name,' he said, "'is Sarah Gamp?' "'Which I scorn to deny it,' answered that lady. 
Your profession, I understand, is that of a nurse. Which it is, said Mrs. Gamp, and as I was saying only yesterday to Mrs. Harris, which I don't see here to-night owing to the fact of her being unable to come, and it being the third time, poor soul, in as many years, Mr. Pickwick coughed. I must beg you, Mrs. Gamp, he said, to realize that in the lapse of eighty years a certain change in public taste has dictated, uh, has prescribed certain forms of reticence. Retigence, said Mrs. Gamp, bridling. Don't talk to me of retigence as if I was a Betsy Prig that couldn't be trusted within sight of a brandy-bottle, which I abhor, she added, except it might be for a chill and being overtired after sitting up with a demise. Very good, Mrs. Gamp broke in Mr. Voles, delighted to find his witness developing immediately, and without guidance, the very characteristics and no others which he wished to elucidate. Now tell us, please, Mrs. Gamp, and remember that you are virtually under oath. Are you real? Am I which? said Mrs. Gamp. Are you real? said the rusty lawyer. Do you mean to tell this court, this assembly, that there ever have been or could be women like you? Are you willing to assert that you are anything more than an abstraction? Have you ever, in the eighty years of retrospect laid open to us, ever really lived? Mrs. Gamp might have answered. We say advisedly, might have, in the course of time, although to all intent and purpose she seemed suddenly to be rooted immovable, her mouth half open, her features fixed in a stare of mingled surprise and contempt at her interlocutor but her answer was not needed, for at this moment a very singular thing happened. Whether it was due to the necromancy of Mr. Micawber's punch, or to the lateness of the hour, or to the growing absorption of the assembled auditors, we cannot say. But the truth is that as they sat gazing fixedly at the witness, a strange and wonderful phenomenon made itself felt. The face and form of Mrs. Gamp were multiplied before their eyes, into not one but a thousand forms. It was as if the bounds of space and time were pushed aside, and the eye could see through the long vista of the years, and through the broad expanse of space from country to country, not one but a thousand, a hundred thousand gamps. Here were gamps in London garrets tending dying fires beside the already dead, gamps moving to and fro in area kitchens, their mysterious patterns clicking on the stone floor gamps with monstrous umbrellas staggering in the rain, gamps tending market-stalls in the London fog. Nay, it was as if Mr. Voles's words had acted like a talisman to call forth a legion of gamps to prove the existence of a single one. Nor were the Sarah gamps confined to a single time or country. There were mid-Victorian gamps and gamps of the closing century, Australian gamps vigorously washing clothes beneath the gum-trees, Canadian gamps scrubbing stone steps regardless of the thermometer, French gamps busily checking umbrellas in the theatres, American gamps superintending ladies' withdrawing-rooms in railroad stations, nay, I will swear it, gamps that in form and fashion were negro, negroid, or mulatto, but still evidently and indisputably Sarah Gamp. Strangest of all, no two of the figures in the vision seemed quite alike the red shawl might or might not be present, the brandy-bottle might or might not be there, the clicking of the patterns might or might not be heard, 
and yet indisputably and undeniably each of the figures was the same illustrious undying ever repeating sarah gamp mr voles aghast at the vision that he had summoned sank into his seat i think mrs gamp said mr pickwick that we need not question you further you at least exist sergeant buzfuz rose again to his feet call mr pecksniff he said that gentleman who was carefully attired in his customary long black coat and irreproachable white tie and who had by this time warmed his back until it had attained to that comfortable sensation demanded by his altruistic feelings drew near to the lawyer's table perhaps mr fogg continued the sergeant as our friend mr voles appears to be incapacitated for further effort you will yourself be good enough to examine this witness mr fogg rose in his place bowed to the sergeant and the chairman and directed his attention to mr pecksniff your name i believe he said is mr pecksniff the latter gentleman bowed will you kindly tell the assembled company went on mr fogg looking about him with a great assumption of sharpness what is the nature of your profession i am said mr pecksniff in my humble capacity an architect and will you please tell us pursued mr fogg what principal buildings you have designed certainly said mr pecksniff with great urbanity none at all none at all repeated mr fogg surprised none at all reiterated mr pecksniff to be quite frank and candid he continued as we are speaking here purely among friends and i presume under the seal of confidence i may say that the buildings which i am supposed to have designed were all the work of other people do you see any of them here queried the lawyer one or two said mr pecksniff unabashed i think i see my young friend thomas pinch whose talent was for many years invaluable to me and i believe mr martin chuzzlewit whose design for a grammar school has always been considered one of my most successful inspirations in other words sir said mr fogg with great severity you are an arrant hypocrite i am said mr pecksniff with a bow and a fraud sir at your service said mr pecksniff you pocket money that you never earned i do assented mr pecksniff and you cover it up with a cloak of religion and family affection precisely said mr pecksniff smiling urbanely and placing his hands beneath his coat-tails with his familiar gesture of self-satisfaction that is exactly my policy and do you mean sir said mr fogg swelling visibly with the importance of his inquiry do you mean to tell this sensible this sagacious company that in face of these facts of your carrying on business in this fashion that you are a real person have you the assurance sir to state in the face of this damning evidence that there are real people such as you in actual business in actual life mr fogg to judge by the way in which he here drew himself up apparently expected that the result of his inquiry would be so to crush and annihilate both the witness and the auditors as to explode the very existence of mr pecksniff into the thinnest nothingness of the most impossible fiction if so his expectation was doomed to disappoint 
for he had no sooner propounded his question as to whether real business by real people was carried on in this fashion than the entire audience broke into loud and uncontrolled laughter it may have been that the seventy years that have elapsed since the first earthly incarnation of mr pecksniff have accentuated the character of modern business but certain it is that the notion that the existence of mr pecksniff and his methods was a thing unheard of in the present business world convulsed the assembly with spontaneous merriment we will not say that the same strange phenomenon repeated itself as in the case of mrs gamp but it is undoubted that before the minds of the auditors there might well have arisen the vision of an unending undying series of pecksniffs english american and continental pecksniffs of the old world and pecksniffs of the new pecksniffs in little white ties sitting at board meetings of corporations pecksniffs in long black coats presiding at funerals pecksniffs interviewing delegations of workingmen and refusing with deep reluctance all suggestions of increases of wages pecksniffs presiding over colleges pecksniffs elected into senates pecksniffs in city councils till from the very length and extension of the series it appeared as if mr pecksniff expressed within himself the whole spirit and essence of modern business and modern politics indeed it appeared not merely as if mr pecksniff were extremely real and actually existed but as if there existed more of him than of any other human being small wonder then that when mr fogg resumed his seat and mr pecksniff complacently returned to his place in front of the fire there was a general feeling that the reality of at least his character had been more than vindicated we could only wish that the limits of space before us would allow of an extended description of the examination of the succeeding witnesses we could wish that we might convey to our readers some notion of the genial warmth with which mr wardle met the accusation that his house at dingley dell was an impossible place such as could only have existed in the grossest and most exaggerated fiction of how he took his oath with perhaps unnecessary emphasis that it was just the kind of house that might be found by those who had the eyes to see it especially at christmas time throughout the length and breadth of england of how he met the accusation that it was always christmas time at his house by the simple but convincing statement that it always was of how he met the charge that his young medical friends mr bob sawyer and mr benjamin allen were not possible or actual people by offering to turn any two dozen distinguished modern doctors inside out and find a bob sawyer and a ben allen coiled up in the composition of any one of them and of how he presently retired triumphant from the witness-stand amid the uproarious applause of mr weller mr tapley and even the excited mr sawyer himself equally fain should we be able to describe the examination of mr weller senior and how he refused to be drawn into any generalization as to whether actual london bus-drivers and hackney-coachmen might be said to resemble himself or how his solicitor and friend mr pell an intimate acquaintance of the lord chancellor saved the day by producing no less than fifty sworn and authenticated photographs of london busmen and cabmen of the year of grace nineteen sixteen every one of which was conceived in the very spirit and likeness of mr tony weller equally regrettable it is that we cannot linger to describe the triumphant exoneration of mr micawber 
of Mr. Wackford Squeers, of Captain Cuddle, and others whose characters had been made the subject of unjust aspersions. In every case it was shown with the greatest ease that these gentlemen not only had actually lived, but were still living, and that too in every habitable country of the Christian globe. Only one incident of a slightly discordant nature occurred to mar the symmetry of the occasion. At the very height of the general enthusiasm, a number of females, conspicuous among them were Mrs. Annie Strong and Little Nell, forced their way to the front and burst into such floods of tears that for the time being they threatened to wash away the entire assembly in the flood-tide of their grief. Mrs. Strong, indeed, kneeling at the feet of each of the lawyers in turn, and offering to make an ample atonement to each one of them for the errors of her past life, may be said to have pushed the bounds of reality to the breaking point. Indeed, for a moment, when the loud sobs of Ham Peggotty, John Perry Bingle, and others of the men were conjoined with those of the women, it seemed as if the meeting might end in disaster. But at the critical moment the voice of Sergeant Buzfuzz, who declared that the evidence was now all complete, and that under the rules of the court evidence given through tears could not be admitted, saved the situation and when a moment later the sergeant called upon Dr. Blimber to summarize the general conclusions of the assembly, it was felt that a great cause had been saved. Of the final discourse of Dr. Blimber, we fear that we can only give the briefest outline. Whether from the lateness of the hour, or from the majestic roll of the doctor's periods, our eyes were closed in such an exquisite appreciation of his eloquence, that the details of it escaped our apprehension but we understood him to say that the truth was that from the time of the Romans onward, art had of necessity proceeded by the method of selected particulars and conspicuous qualities, that this was the nature and meaning of art itself, that exaggeration, meaning the heightening of the color to be conveyed, was the very life of it, that herein lay the difference between the photograph, we believe the doctor said the daguerreotype, and the portrait, that by this means and by this means alone could the real truth, the reality greater than life, be conveyed. All of this and more we truly believe the doctor to have said. But as he continued speaking, his voice to our ears seemed to grow fainter and fainter, the pictured company around grew dim before the eye, a gentle haze gradually enshrouded the benevolent face of Mr. Pickwick as he sat with closed eyes and head sunk forward, intent upon the doctor's every word, fainter to the ear and dimmer to the eye, until somehow, as with the soft vanishing of a cherished vision, the picture drifted from our sight, and we sat alone awake beside the smouldering fire, the open book of the great master across our knee, musing over the profundity of its God-given message. End of chapter 7